Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Welcome, and thank you everybody for joining us for uh, this special collaboration between the Commonwealth Club and KQED. This program is the second in a four-part series about President Trump's first 100 days. Um, I'm Marisa Lagos. I'm a California politics and government reporter with KQED News, and I'm very excited to be joined by this impressive panel of guests. Um, I'm going to start by introducing them, and then we'll get right into the discussion. So on my far right... uh, just in seating, not necessarily in politics. <laughs> so this is uh, Antonio Villaraigosa, the former mayor of Los Angeles from 2005 to 2013. Um, as mayor, Mr. Villaraigosa worked on reducing crime in Los Angeles, increasing the rate of high school graduation, and expanding public transportation. Time Magazine included him among the 25 most influential Latinos in California, and he is running to become governor of California in 2018. Uh, Sitting next to him is Corinne Rankin, the California Director of African Americans for Trump. Corinne Rankin served as a district-level delegate and a deputy whip to the 2016 Republican National Convention and as a political advocate in Redwood City. Thank you so much for joining us, Corinne. Next to Corinne is John Yu, professor of law at UC Berkeley School of Law and a former U.S. Deputy Assistant Attorney General. During the first years of George W. Bush's presidency, Yu's work at the Department of Justice involved issues such as foreign affairs, national security, and the separation of powers. He's an expert in the power of the executive branch, which has been a controversial issue, as you all know during the new presidency and uh, we look forward to talking about that tonight thanks for being here and on the far left which maybe is accurate is (laughs) (laughs) mark leno (laughs) former california state senator for san francisco and he is running for mayor in san francisco in 2019 mark just finished two terms in the state senate and previously served in the state assembly and on the san francisco board of supervisors throughout his 18 years in public office mark has championed an expansion of gay rights and reform of the prison sentencing system among many other issues Well, thank you all for coming to talk about President Trump's first 100 days. Um, There's really so much we could talk about, and and I hope to. Um, You know, sort of catching up on the news before I came in here today, sort of struck by the the depth and breadth of how much there is out there. But um, I think I want to start generally with just sort of your first impressions and if there's anything that you have been particularly struck by in these first... I think I counted them. I think we're only like 63 days in, even though it feels like maybe it's been a little longer. Um, So Corinne, maybe we'll start with you since you were a delegate. Um, How are you feeling after a few months of this presidency? Uh, I'm I'm feeling happy. I feel I'm satisfied. Uh, You know, our President Trump and Vice President Mike Pence uh, made promise to the American people. They said once they were elected that they would be in the business of keeping promises. 
and that's exactly what they've been doing. So I know that there may be some people who don't like the campaign promises that they've made to the American people, uh, but the fact is is that they are keeping their promises, and I think that is one uh, respectable and admirable quality in anybody. Um, John, you you have been in an administration. You're you're an expert on these issues. I mean, is there anything that struck you or particularly surprised you in these first days? Well, I, first of all, I just want to say thanks for having yeah. me, and it's really great to be with uh, distinguished speakers and uh, elected politicians. I don't know how you run for office over and over again and win. <laughs> I, it's I've, a diagnosable condition. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As a child of psychiatrists, I recognize yeah. it when I see it. <laughs> um, but I, so, so from the perspective of someone who studied a lot of presidents, uh, I worry that President Trump and the administration are exercising too much executive power too quickly over too many issues. Uh, and so, in some areas, I think he's uh, making demands that the presidency itself can't uh, can't follow through on. So for example, the border wall, which you've heard so much about. The president can't build a border wall. The president can't even build a walking path along the border. Only Congress can appropriate the funds and authorize the building of a wall. There are some things he can do. He can terminate the Trans-Pacific Partnership because it hadn't been ratified by the Senate, but he can't terminate NAFTA because that was passed by Congress as a statute. Um, I think you're also seeing this uh, today in the last few days. He's trying to push uh, a repeal of Obamacare, but the president can't do that. That's only up for Congress. That's a much tougher, harder job than just one president. Um, but the thing that really has surprised me, I, I, uh, you know, I've done a few of these panels, and uh, the thing that has really surprised me is how uh, I think this administration could really get wrapped up and pulled down by the controversy over Russia, which I had not expected when I, during the campaign and in the transition, I didn't think it was gonna be that important an issue. It seemed more like partisan fighting, but I think now the uh, declaration that there's a criminal investigation going on into the highest levels of the White House and the aides, that can destroy a presidency as, we, as we've seen with the Clinton administration and the Nixon administration. And sometimes as you've seen, the cover up and denials can be much, much worse than the underlying crime, but that's enough to bring down a presidency. And that's really surprised me that that has become maybe the defining issue of the first, what did you say, 60 days? 62. 62 yeah, 60 60 days. days. Uh, Mayor Ragosa, what, what are your sort of initial thoughts and I mean, you know, as Corinne said, a lot of what's been happened is what he promised on the campaign trail. I mean, should we be surprised? I think this is the most direct assault uh, on our democracy, on our, on the pillars uh, of our democracy, on the institutions that make that democracy work that I've seen in my lifetime. I've never, and I'm not speaking as a partisan. Yes, I did chair the Democratic Convention in 2012. I, I've seen conservatives and respect them. I've never seen anyone assault the press, uh, undermine the judiciary, the Congress, in the way that uh, this president has in such a short period of time. And that's just a fact. I've never seen anyone who political fact describes as 76% of everything that came out of his mouth in the course of the campaign and continues uh, is either a lie or a misrepresentation of fact. I've never seen uh, the, 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 the divisiveness uh, from, come from the office of the president in the way that I've seen in this election. And I've, I've seen them all since, you know, I'm, I am 64 years <laughs> young. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I think that this is without question a remarkable 
uh, moment in our nation's history. Mark Leno, um, John, you and Antonio Villaraigosa sound surprised. Uh, you were in Sacramento when a, another outsider became an executive, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, and I mean, it's been interesting to me as someone who was up there at the time. I, I think for him, you know, one of his biggest challenges was Republicans at that time. It, Democrats weren't in love with him either, but um, they, I think, they felt a lot of um, hope sort of diminish as they saw him carry out. I mean, do you see similarities there, or is there anything here that's jumping out to you? There are great similarities, and I'm just going to comment briefly on them because I do want to get back yeah. to the original question that you had asked and uh, dig a little deeper into what those promises that were made and are they in fact being kept. So they both have in common an outsized <coughs> ego, above and beyond just about anything we see in most of humankind, and <laughs> that neither of them have a public policy bone in their body. So if you can convince either one of them that a particular issue will reflect well upon them, you can convince them that you'll have their support. And if you, they think it won't reflect well on them, well then they're opposed to it. And a glaring example, of course, is the debate going on with regard to the Affordable Care Act right now. He is not dealing with any of the details and this is where he's tripping himself up. It's, and, and some of the reports from what these inner office meetings have been about, it's all the about the politics. If you move in this direction, uh, where, are you, you Congress member going to fare better in your next election or not? But it's not about our health and well-being. So our promise is being kept. He promised that he would get rid of the Affordable Care Act and replace it with something extraordinary. There would be no <coughs> cuts to Medicaid Everyone, it would be universal coverage. That is the opposite of what he is now supporting. So I don't think that's a promise kept. He had a secret solution to destroy ISIS. Well, it's 63 days now, and this might be one of the most important issues. He claims that we have to now increase our military spending, though we spend as much, if not more, than eight other of the largest spending nations on Earth and three times more than China, and eight times more than Russia. But we need to spend more on our security, but where's the secret plan to attack ISIS? So I don't know if that's a promise kept. Uh, the list is quite long. Corinne, um, first of all, I, I think this is a discussion, so feel free to jump in. But you know, one <coughs> of the things beyond some of the policy issues that were just brought up that I think actually, John, you touched on was this issue of credibility. Um, we saw a pretty withering Wall Street Journal op-ed this week talking about that. Um, essentially saying that with these exaggerations, falsehoods, that if, you know, I think it opened with if North Korea were to launch um, a missile and it, and it struck 100 miles from Hawaii, would anyone believe the president? I mean, is that something that you have concerns about in terms of the tweets and the, the you know, demonstrably false facts? Or do you think that people, you know, his base are happy to see him sort of taking on Washington in this way? Um, I his base, we're ecstatic. We are incredibly happy to see him taking on Washington, D.C. Uh, it has been far too long that our congressional leaders and our senators have gone into Washington and they every day they fight and fight and they don't get anything done. I think that it's uh, fantastic that he is pushing them to do their jobs. And as far as the Affordable Health Care Act, I remember seven years ago today when Nancy Pelosi said that we had to pass the bill before we could see what was in it. So for them to be having, you know, 
vigorous debates about what the bill contains, I, I think that's a, that's a good thing. It's called work. They're going over it line by line and they're discussing the details and they're not gonna always agree. But you know, what we did last time, passing it and then you know, surprise, like opening a present on Christmas and whatever it is it is, that, that's not working. That's, that's not transparency. And you know, l whether you like Donald Trump or, or, or you don't like President Trump, uh, you know, the fact that he tweets to the American people, and you know, I myself personally, I don't of course favor every single one of his tweets, but I'm always glad that he does it because he is speaking directly to the American people. He's bypassing the press. He's saying what he has to say and what he feels the American people should know and there is no spin. And granted, it's not always, well, his tweet. Antonio. <laughs> you, okay, so the spin <laughs> happens later on on the network news, but not in the tweets. But, you know, look, uh, he is uh, working hard at denying 24 million people healthcare. Uh, he's working hard at building walls. Uh, he's working hard at tearing uh, up trade agreements, uh, that whatever you think about them, remember this, nine out of 10 markets, new markets, are outside of the United States of America and no state benefits from trade with the rest of the world more than this state. Um, so he's, he may be working hard um, at uh, creating a, a divisiveness and a polarization in our body politic and that I, that I think goes against the grain of what we need right now. I think everybody here agrees that there was too much gridlock, too much polarization, that people don't work uh, together right. enough. Uh, I think that's something that virtually every American agrees. But uh, what you see here is a man fanning the flames of hate, of divisiveness, in a way that's not in our best interest. You know, no nation has called, well, maybe one, uh, no nation has deported 11 million people. Uh, you know, what, what, what he doesn't say, first of all, according to the Academy, the National Academy of Sciences, uh, immigrants, including the undocumented, commit less crimes uh, than the native-born. In fact, the native-born commit five times the crimes that they do. What it doesn't say is that these people are contributing mightily to the California and to the national economy. What he doesn't say that is that there is a net migration minus of Mexicans coming uh, to the United States, and that uh, only Mexicans are only 50% of the undocumented. What he doesn't say is that 57% of high tech is foreign born, uh, that are, you know, the, that ag, that construction, the service economy would go under if we weren't uh, a welcoming state and a nation in the way that we are. Uh, so, you know, I, I agree, he's working hard at creating a, a level of polarization that was bad before he got elected and is much worse today. Illegal immigration hurts our economy, and I don't think that as Americans we should be encouraging anyone, no matter what country they come from, to enter into our country in an illegal fashion. There is no fact to prove that, and, and point of fact, every study, Pew, the National Academy of Sciences, which I've referred to, an authoritative study on this that, that dem demonstrates, not just articulates, but demonstrates that in, in, in point of fact, 
They're creating much more, they're contributing much more to our economy than they're taking away. That's just a fact, and particularly to the federal government. Um, and you know, here's, here's another fact. 44% of all, in the city of Los Angeles, 44% of, the, of all the businesses have started, have started by the foreign born. Uh, you know, 50, I said 57% of high tech is, uh, are foreign born. You know, this state, this nation was built on the backs of the foreign born. And the nation, that, the, the, the idea that we would pull the rug uh, on them in the way that he is proposing uh, is just untenable. Look, nobody, nobody uh, here uh, would dispute that America has a right to secure and protect its borders. Uh, but there are 11 million people here giving them a pe fixing this broken immigration system, uh, giving them a path to citizenship, uh, allowing them to continue to contribute here uh, will benefit this great country. That's just a fact. And what you hear coming from his mouth again and again are misrepresentations of fact. You mentioned it. CNN, virtually everybody uh, agrees. Ursa, Almost I'm, nothing yeah. that he says uh, is based on fact. I want to get back to you your Wall Street Journal editorial, mm -hmm. uh, which I did see. And keep in mind, this is a conservative that's, editorial. That's board. why I mentioned it. I think and, it's more news and, in there. And it, I would only agree 100% with everything Antonio has just said. Uh, all of the data that he's sharing with us is accurate. But your question was about his credibility. Yeah. Because I think the editorial went on to say that not unlike an alcoholic, He's clinging to an empty bottle of gin <laughs> in his repetition of this falsehood that President Obama was tapping his phone. Mm -hmm. His quote was tapping his wires. So now he wants to say he put wire tapping in quotes, uh, which is not an accurate representation of what he said, and that... Sean Spicer says he was referring to the Obama administration, not to Obama, but then he called out Obama and called him sad by name. So with regard to the credibility, the campaign was conceived in lies and his administration is now being operated uh, with all, only with lies. And, and this matters because what if there is an international crisis, or more likely, when there is an international crisis, what credibility does he have? Just this past week, he said that Germany owes the United States and NATO money, which they don't. These are our friends. So when we need him, and he calls their leader to say, this is a crisis, I need this from you to protect our planet, why would you even answer the phone? So, John, you, I want you to jump in here because yeah. you've advised presidents mm. as a lawyer. And I, first of all, just want to know, like, does your head spin thinking about if you were legally advising Trump <laughs> and seeing these tweets? Because yeah, it is, you. I mean, wh wh whether you agree with yeah. him or not, I think that um, it is not probably the advice that most lawyers would give somebody in that position yes. to be that blunt. Well, I think the immigration issue is a good way to think about this. And I, I think a lot of it is actually... Uh, as Corinne says, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, we do want the presidency to be successful as an institution. And I think he's, it's self-inflicted harms that are really slowing him down, whether it's saying things which aren't true. And so immigration is a good example because he comes into office and he issues this immigration order which was badly, badly flawed from a legal perspective 
And if he had shared it with the agencies that are responsible for immigration, like Homeland Security, they would clearly and quickly have fixed it. So he spent a lot of energy putting this out, blocking uh, people from coming in from these seven countries. Uh, he uh, then claimed that this was necessary uh, temporarily to block and fight terrorism, even though uh, most counterterrorism experts that I've talked to would say this would not help or change in any way fighting uh, the terrorist threat, because it's so easy. You just come from another country, or you get someone with a different passport to come in and carry out your uh, terrorist plots. In fact, we want to work with the moderates in those countries to help us uh, learn more about terrorism. And then to attack the courts in this very, uh, I think, harmful way, there are, there are proper times for the president and the courts to fight. The Obama, Obama administration fought with the Supreme Court over Obamacare. Franklin Roosevelt attacked the Supreme Court of the New Deal. The thing that bothers me is that you have a limited reservoir of presidential power for use for important times. If you think about it, President Trump is attacking the Supreme Court while he's trying to put a new member on that court. By the way, Neil Gorsuch is the luckiest guy ever because the more the headlines are about Russia and he's going to get confirmed and no one's going to notice that it happened. No one's watching his hearings anymore. He's like, thank you, Putin. <laughs> you know, Which he's are like, fantastic. Yeah, he's, right. like, he's, just gonna, he's not going to be controversial. Well, but but, but my, my final point is just that he fought and fought. And when you think about it, it was a temporary order right. to suspend immigration. It wasn't, you know, if you're going to fight the court and fight Congress, fight over the grand compromise that we obviously have to meet between the Congress and the president to settle the immigration issue. Don't fight over a small thing like a temporary border exclusion that expires in a few days. Well, I want to ask you about that because you wrote before the second travel ban was issued that you thought if he had narrowed it to you know, exclude visa holders and US citizens, if you took out the language that uh, appeared to sort of give Christians preference over other religious groups, that it could pass legal muster. And yet, again, we saw a second one issued, and the court looked back at statements that were made over the course of the campaign and, and put that one on hold as well. So I guess, just like, what do you make yeah, of that given? That is, it's unprecedented. So I don't think that the, well, it, let me see, it's unprecedented. And the reason why is because of Donald Trump. No other president has sparked this kind of review. So just in short, the question is, is uh, the Trump administration trying to discriminate on the basis of religion? You are allowed to discriminate on all kinds of factors when you decide who to let in as an immigrant. We, you, know, you have to make choices about who comes in and who doesn't. Uh, but the Constitution forbids the government from establishing or favoring a religion and interfering with the free exercise of religion. And so usually when a law or an executive order is issued, the courts look at the face of it. And they say, okay, can we tell from the text of the law, does it discriminate? But because of all the things Donald Trump said during the campaign, and then all these aides who should not be allowed to ever talk on camera or to a newspaper ever See, again. back to my even point about were, Harper. Even if you were Trump, you should tell them to stop talking to the press. They have undermined the order by saying all kinds of anti-Muslim comments. Right, they quoted comments. the Stephen Miller comments exactly. in that and order. Exactly, and so a court, this has never happened before because no White House has ever you know, sent out these kind of comments that make, you, make courts and regular people question the motives of a president. So in the past, we always assume that the president has uh, only good intentions when he issues an executive order. So that's the unprecedented part. And I think it'll go all the way to the Supreme Court is, can the courts look and see whether the president actually has bad motives yeah. behind it, an illegal, unconstitutional motive? So the courts have never done that before. So this is a unique, unprecedented occurrence. Well, Corinne, I mean, you agree with the, it seems like a lot of the basis of this policy, but does it concern you, these sorts of things, the way it's being carried out, and the fact that, you know, as has been pointed out, 
there are three branches of government and, and when you antagonize the courts or Congress or don't work with them, that that could actually stall the agenda you're hoping to see carried out. Well, I guess I don't look at it as antagonizing the courts. It's, you know, he does have a right to raise questions. He has a right to question the judge. He has a right to question uh, the judge's outside affiliation. And if those outside affiliations are uh, influencing their decisions in the courtroom. As far as this last, um, you know, with the judge in Hawaii stopping the executive order, you know, I personally am involved in a, a uh, constitutional case uh, through my trade association, and we went to court last month, and the judge actually specifically said, because we raised questions about the, the plaintiff saying things outside in the press and the media, and the judge told us flat out, I don't care what they said in the media, I don't care what they're saying outside of this courtroom, I'm only going to concern myself with what is in these documents. So you have this judge, who's in the nice circuit court who tells us flat out she doesn't want to hear it, but then you have a, another judge in Hawaii who's taking all this into consideration. So to me, it, it, it does raise a question and concern as to why is one judge in the Ninth Circuit not having any part of what's going on outside the courtroom, but another one is. So it, it will shape up to be uh, very interesting for sure. Well, I want to stay on immigration for a second because um, we've seen uh, Actually, former Governor Pete Wilson pop up in the news lately. And, and I've been struck as somebody who grew up in California by um, the potential similarities we don't know yet. But between the moment that's occurring nationally and what happened in, in the 90s with Prop 187 and a real you know, backlash against immigrants in California, um, I was looking back and you know, there's a PPIC poll released yesterday that showed 68% of Californians favor a path to citizenship. Only a quarter said they favored a wall. Um, you know, compare this to 94 when Prop 187 to deny public benefits to immigrants passed with 59% of, of California voters supporting it. Um, Mark, let's start with you. I mean, do you think, A, that there are lessons that California can offer the nation? And, and do you think that this is the nation's 187 moment? Uh, no, I'm not the first one to suggest that so goes San Francisco, goes California, and so goes California, goes the nation. And so, yes, I think there are significant lessons for the country to learn. And I think the Republican Party had their own aha moment after Barack Obama's reelection in 2012. And they had their convening and came up with their blueprint that just on raw politics alone, the demographics of the nation, not unlike the demographics of California over the past couple of decades, the demographics are changing. And we, we the Republican Party, they said, need to be communicating in a more inclusive and less discriminatory fashion. And then, of course, their candidate came around in 16 and went in completely the opposite right. direction. And he, now, won. and he won. And he won. Now, there will be many years of review of how that happened and what happened. And I want to be the first to say that it's not all on Republicans having won as much as Democrats having lost, and not pointing a finger at one, our candidate, one candidate, but just as a party, uh, we had lost our way, and we were not talking to some very disaffected, very harmed voters throughout the Rust Belt and in other parts of the country. We didn't have a message that resonated. We weren't talking about their hardships, and that we need to do, because those are, speaking as Democrat, our people, we have always represented working people and had their concerns and their lives in our hearts and in our policy making. 
but nonetheless, they did win. I think that was an anomaly for multiple reasons, some of which I've just touched on, and that all of this notwithstanding, the demographics are going to continue to change. So either party can do as they will, but the nation will look much more like California in 20 years, uh, just as California is much different from where it was 20 years ago. And that does have a significant impact on politics. Trump I mean, is not an anomaly because, uh, it just, uh, go right ahead. Because uh, it, the Democratic Party suffered incredible losses below the ballot, but below the federal ballot. I mean, I, I think I read that uh, the Republicans have majorities at, in state legislatures, governorships that. that haven't been seen since the 1920s. When, uh, so it wasn't just a one-off Trump uh, you know, got lucky. And that's why I say Democrats yeah. must take some responsibility yeah, for that. Up and down the it ballot. It wasn't just yeah. that candidate. It was also a failure on the part of the Democratic Party. You're listening to the Commonwealth Club of California, and we're talking about President Trump's first 100 days. This is the second of a series of programs in partnership with KQED. Our panel today is Antonio Villaraigosa, former mayor of Los Angeles and candidate for governor of California, Corinne Rankin, 2016 RNC delegate for California and California director for African Americans for Trump, John Yu, professor at UC Berkeley School of Law, and former deputy assistant U.S. Attorney General under President George W. Bush, and Mark Leno, former California state senator for San Francisco, and candidate for San Francisco mayor. I'm Marisa Lagos, California politics and government reporter at KQED, and your moderator tonight. Well, Mayor Viragosa, I mean, you've lived this in California. You were in the legislature in the 90s. Um, I, I read somewhere that you talked about at the end of your term as mayor that you were happy that everyone had stopped saying, oh, he's the Latino mayor of LA, that that wasn't like the first thing they said. But, it, but you know, Latinos in California have um, exercised incredible, I think, it, just in the last 20 years, we've seen such a growth of the power of Latino politicians when you look at the state legislature. Um, I mean, what are you kind of looking back towards 94, reflecting on these days? Well, actually, I, I was elected in 1994. Uh, in 1994, I took on Proposition 187. I challenged three strikes, you're out. Uh, I said uh, back in 1994 that we were building too many prisons and not enough colleges and n not investing in education. Um, I, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, so I was on the ballot back then. I was uh, uh, the, the, the former president, the outcoming president of the ACLU uh, when I ran uh, in 1994. And I said back then, I said, uh, be careful what you wish for. You divide people on the head of a pin. Uh, you, you say to a whole group of people who've come here and work hard in this state that they don't belong here, and they will. Uh, they will demonstrate uh, their power, and they have. I think you all know we're a blue state in no small part because of 187 because of the registration that we did, uh, particularly in the Latino community, two million people uh, who have voted more Democrat uh, than Republican. Uh, before that, it was a swing state in, in many respects. Uh, I think what you'll say, I think, uh, uh, you know, the Senator's right on, uh, Senator Leno, when he says that uh, it's only a matter of time. The, the demographics are not with him. And the other thing that's not with him, you know, it, it works on a short term, but leaders, the role of a leader is to unite us. 
It's to identify what we have in common. It's to say that whether we're Irish or black or uh, Latino or Asian, wherever we come from, that we come, you know, to pursue that American dream. Uh, you know, th this notion of dividing people based on race and religion, it won't work over time. It, it, it ha it's never worked over time. We've seen episodically over the nation's history those, that kind of nativist, you know, uh, you know, and religious discrimination, but over time it won't work. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the senator hit it right on the head. We, you know, we gotta, uh, people vote for you, and, and I, I hope we can talk not just against Trump, but talk about what we're for. Ultimately, exactly. people vote for you, and, and they vote for leaders, uh, not just that bring us together, but bring us together around a common agenda. You know, there are a lot of people in this country that are hurting today. They're not making it. They work hard every single day, and they don't see uh, them making much progress. They don't see a better life for their kids. Some of them voted uh, for uh, Donald Trump. Some of them voted for Hillary or uh, Sanders before that. We've got to figure out what we do to create more jobs, to more middle-class jobs, to invest in people again, to invest in the, our human capital and our infrastructure. So it's not good enough just to scream at Trump. We've got to double down on what we do here in California and do it better. We've got to invest in our schools. You know, we're, we're close to the bottom in per-pupil spending, close to the bottom in every indicia of success for our schools. If we want to, the new economy, we've got to invest in the, new, in the generation who will be the motor force of that economy. Uh, and that means we've got to train our people. We'll be a million down in the number of college graduates we need by 2025, and a million down in the number of uh, people with specialized skills. So we could scream at Trump, or we could do a better job in this state. I've heard a lot of people in Sacramento talk about, you know, the California rebound and how well we're doing. Well, I was on a listening tour, 18 months up and down the state, 51 days, 26 of them in the Central Valley. What if I told you that in the sixth largest economy in the world, in, a, in, in a, an economy that's hot, yes, we've done better than the national average, and we're doing, we've created more jobs than Florida and Texas combined. We're not, we're not doing it everywhere, everybody. You know, you look at the Valley, three of the top five cities with the highest poverty rate are in the Valley. A lot of them voted for Trump. Some of them voted for Hillary. Uh, we've got to look at that. We've got to do something about that. LA's 14th in the country in terms of poverty. San Bernardino is ninth. So if we're going to push back on what we hear and see from Trump, we're gonna to have to do a better job at lifting people up and at creating and strengthening our middle class. So uh, I, you know, I, rec I wanna work with everyone to do that. But uh, I'll be clear, uh, you know, we've got a lot of work here uh, in a blue state to do a better job uh, at uh, demonstrating to people that if they work hard and play by the rules, they can make it in this country in the way we've made it in this country for a few hundred years. So uh, if I just uh, want to follow I, up, I can, I can help answer that. You can, uh, as a business owner, I would suggest lowering taxes, rolling back some re regulations so that I can hire more employees. Stop making it so hard on the small business owner, you know, because we're job creators too. So the difference between me hiring one employee and five employees is regulation, taxes, payroll taxes, healthcare costs. You know, it, California has created an environment where you almost don't wanna open a business 
or start a business or hire employees. Because at the end of the day, you get up and, and you work hard and, and you go that extra mile, but it's gone. You're paying it all to taxes, you're paying it all for fees, and you know, I'm on the legislative committee for my, my industry, and every time I turn around, my regulator is taxing me or feeing me for something new. And so when, when, you, when you, you, ask your, you ask yourself, what can Democrats do better? They can actually go to businesses, talk to business owners, and find out what's going wrong and why we're having such a hard time, and then go back to the Capitol and start making those changes. There's no question. There's no question. I think anybody who... who we have to start being more solution-oriented instead of co has, complaining about what's wrong. I, Let's start finding I solutions. I let you finish. I let you finish. Um, I think anybody who lives in the state, who has a business in the state, has to acknowledge that, that it's fairly oppressive for small business particularly. And small business, without question, is you know, the driver, the engine of the California economy. So I, 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 don't, I don't dispute uh, that we could do a better job, particularly with, with, uh, with uh, small business. If we're going to fix the broken tax system, though, let's then let's fix it. fix it all the way around. Um, in, in 1978, when we passed uh, Prop 13, uh, homeowners were paying 40% uh, 40, uh, 40 of the freight. Today, they're paying 60% of the freight. Uh, you know, we need to fix uh, the tax system, both uh, the upper income tax, uh, the uh, broken uh, property tax, the fact that the fa we don't tax the fastest growing part of the California economy, which is the service economy. We've seen bipartisan uh, you know, proposals from Think Long and California Forward would speak to that. So you can't just pick and choose which taxes we don't like. We certainly need to fix a broken tax system. And I don't dispute some of what you said. I do think we need to make a lot more investment in infrastructure. And, you know, we have the ignominious uh, distinction of being at the bottom with, in, in education. Yeah. And, you, and, and when you look at the, the economy, which is predicated on intellectual capital, if we don't make investments in that human capital, we won't succeed as a, as a state. Um, so I certainly look forward to hearing uh, from uh, you and uh, businesses like you on, on that issue. All right, you guys are gonna have a good conversation after this too. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna bring it back to Trump. And um, Donald Trump did roll out his first budget proposal not too long ago. It feels, again, longer than it really probably was since so much news has happened. Um, but, I mean, John, you, you talked earlier about the travel ban and, and, and talking to counterterrorism experts and maybe that not working. One of the big pieces of this that I think um, is going to be hard to swallow for maybe some conservatives even is that it doesn't actually attack the deficit, but it does really expand military spending at the expense of domestic spending. I mean, what are your thoughts on that proposal and, and the likelihood it's going to go anywhere? So I actually was not a supporter of Trump, and it wasn't it was because I actually questioned his stability to run our foreign policy. I actually feel presidents, when it comes to domestic policy, have a lot of constraints. There's a lot of institutions a president has to motivate, like Congress and the courts. And ultimately, the president cannot do a lot by himself in domestic affairs. Donald Trump can launch a nuclear missile whenever he wants to. He is the commander in chief. There's a guy with a thing called the football who's with him at all times, and it has a nuclear launch. People don't believe this when they hear about this, but it's actually <laughs> it true. It sounds like Hollywood. Yeah, but... it sounds like a movie, but it's actually true. I mean, the president has command of our nuclear force. So that's what bothered me during the campaign about uh, Donald Trump was more whether he was stable enough to be entrusted with our foreign policy. And so uh, 
some of the things you mentioned, uh, I would normally support with a Republican president or a Democratic president. I think Hillary Clinton would also have called for large increases in defense spending, too. She campaigned on that. I, don't, I actually think that's more of a consensus issue for Republicans and Democrats. But again, I think it's a point that people have been making. All of these deep domestic cuts and domestic spending are never going to happen. You know, Congress is not going to approve them. The president's budget is really under the Constitution just a suggestion. The president can't do anything in the budget on his own. So I don't understand, again, why he took on this sort of self-inflicted harm on his own program by saying, I'm going to zero out all foreign aid. You know, right. Republicans love to talk about that, but we don't really want to zero out all foreign aid. They still, we still want to give aid to Europe and Japan. No, it's a joke. <laughs> really, seriously, Republicans want to give money to poor parts of the world too, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> I know, people are like, no, they don't, no, they don't. Um, <laughs> um, Mark, the remind me, we are in San Francisco. So, yeah. uh, I think Mark in San Francisco is a centrist by uh, most well, measures. That, just a leftist in the rest of the country. That's but another it's, it's, program, but, actually. But so, yeah. again, it's like, so again, it's sort of like, I think, uh, so I think we, you know, I think we have kind of, both parties, both candidates said that the military is much weaker for the global responsibilities we have. I do agree with Senator Leno. I don't actually understand what President Trump's strategy is towards the world. I think he's sort of like rattling everyone's cages to see what's gonna fall out. But I don't detect a, you know, sort of a consistent long-term strategy towards different, all these, we have a lot of problems in the world. Like North Korea just tried to launch an intercontinental ballistic missile that could reach all of us here in California. Uh, I think these are, you know, ISIS, Senator Leno talked about. I think there's a lot of, this is not the time to be saying maybe we should pull out of NATO. We should maybe leave South Korea and Japan and pull out of their... So that's the thing. It's like this instability is hurting confidence in the presidency, and it's all self-inflicted. He doesn't need to do it. So that's why I don't, underst I don't understand it. Senator Leno, you were budget chair in Sacramento. You've you know, been in the trenches when there were deep budget cuts and shortfalls. I'm, and, and I'm just kind of wondering what you think about what John sort of mentioned, that interplay between Congress and the president. I mean, a budget is a statement of values, but it also is a suggestion. And um, there has to be a lot of back and forth. And so, I mean, do you see an opening for that, even with a Republican Congress at this point? So I think you put your finger on it when you say that a budget is a statement of values. And so as inexperienced and unqualified as I believe he is for the job, that definition of budget does not change. So we have every right to believe that his b proposed budget is a reflection of his values and that his family's travel expenses on our taxpayer dime is of greater value than the continuation of funding for Meals on Wheels. That's his budget proposal. We have to take it at face value. We shouldn't doubt it. And getting back to how do we keep our workforce thriving, uh, it's not by undercutting the very little that there is to sustain them as we get them back on their feet. So even all these folks who voted for this new president in some of the more distressed parts of the nation, how are they going to get back up on their feet if, for example, as this new health care proposal is being debated, uh, have to prove their employment before they can get any benefit from Medicaid? So you could come up with dozens, if not hundreds, of different anecdotal situations. But one I read about was that a woman was in bed with chronic pain, and she was unable to work. 
uh, she finally, because of the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid expansion in her state, was able to get the benefit of Medicaid, and with proper medication, she could get out of bed. Then she proceeded to get herself a job. So by denying health uh, safety net provisions, we're not investing, as the mayor said, in our human infrastructure. And that's one of the battles we often had, especially with our former Republican <laughs> governor, all this investment in infrastructure, but there is often overlooked the need to invest in the human infrastructure as well as the physical infrastructure. And again, getting back to Mayor Villarosa's comment of investing in the human infrastructure starting at point one, which is public education. I, I, I've been thinking about, you know, this debate between whether or not Trump really represents, you know, conservative values, what Republicans want. And um, I'm, I guess to start with Mayor Villaraigosa on this, I mean, some people have sort of accused Republicans in Congress of, of giving up their values in exchange for potentially getting through some of these big, you know, Medicaid reform or other, or other issues that especially leaders have really wanted. Um, it, do you understand that desire as a former legislator to just sort of to work with an executive that you may not love everything about? Or do you think that there's sort of a line in the sand that needs to be drawn there? I think there's a line in the sand that needs to be drawn there. I think, you know, I, I, you know we could be partisan. And I think there's too much partisanship, uh, frankly. Um, uh, I, when I was mayor, you know, I tell people, you know, you, it's not a Democrat or Republican notion to fix your potholes to protect public safety. You know, I, when you're sitting in that job, you you know, I I saw a lot of what was going on in Washington, and I think I was as disgusted as most people are. Um, but I, I think you draw the line, uh, you know, where your values are, and I I'm surprised because uh, I have a great deal of respect for conservatives. Uh, you know, they have a right to their view. And, uh, you know, we're having a you know, civil debate here, and that's, that's a good thing. Uh, I don't think he's conservative. Uh, I don't know what he is. He's a, certainly a populist. He's a demagogue. He says, as I said earlier, and I don't think we can walk away from that. He, it's been documented uh, time and again that the three-quarters of what comes out of his mouth is not true. Uh, that's that that's a big issue, you know credibility and being able to trust what your leader says You know should mean something so um, I would uh, for me if if someone from my party was doing the kinds of things that he's doing or doing things that I find reprehensible I'd vote against it and I'd take them on um, and I think that's what I would hope uh, you know some of them will do put the country before their party, as we all should. All right, let's take our first audience question. Thank you, I'd like to direct this to Professor Yu. Can a House or Senate committee subpoena a sitting president? And if so, if the president doesn't appear or repeatedly takes the fifth, is there any remedy? That's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> Are you a, are you a are lawyer? Are you a lawyer? <laughs> I'm not. not. If you're not, you should go to Berkeley for law school. He teaches. He teaches some classes. No discounts for you, though. Because <laughs> we got to keep the budget deficit. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great question, because this is going to come up. So, uh, you know, and these, uh, this is, uh, goes back to the thing that really surprised me about the first right. 100 days is how this uh, 
these, Russia, these ties with Russia are really pulling this administration down. And the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, I expect, will start subpoenaing White House aides, campaign officials. I think uh, if I was this guy, Manafort's lawyer, I'd tell him to start hiding out abroad somewhere with no extradition <laughs> treaty with the United States because he's, uh, you, know, these, these, you know, these people who are working in the Trump campaign clearly were uh, at some, earlier taking money and working for Russians and Russian allies. And it raises you know, legitimate questions. The FBI director said there's a criminal investigation going on too. So I think the hard part is not all those other people. Of course, if they're subpoenaed, they're going to have to appear. And if you don't obey a subpoena, you, have, you go to jail. The president, uh, there's, I believe, only one case where a president has actually appeared before a congressional committee ever, subpoena or not. And that's Gerald Ford when he was explaining why he pardoned Nixon. And he came voluntarily. And the problem is we respect each of the three branches as independent. So we've always thought, well, Congress can't force a president to appear. You know, Bill Clinton never appeared at his impeachment trial you know, in the Senate. We also don't think the president can make the chief justice show up in the Oval Office and subject him to questions. And we, we don't, so that's part of the equality of the three branches. So I think what, if I were the House and Senate Intelligence Committee, what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to subpoena and question all the aides around Trump. And, you know, you'll appeal, you know, you can't get Trump to show up and say what he said, but you can ask them what they heard Trump say. And then Trump will probably claim executive privilege and try to prevent his aides from having to appear in Congress. And we're going to have a constitutional crisis about that you know, in a year or two. You heard it here first. Or sooner. <laughs> or Thank sooner. Most people agree that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by about 3 million. I wonder what the panel uh, thinks about the future of the Electoral College and if you're aware of serious movements to change or abolish it. I'm not aware of any movements I, to I, I, change. I, I, would, I, I'd be interested in yeah. Yeah, your, your thoughts on this. So if everyone chips in $100, I'll have a seminar on all constitutional questions after this session. <laughs> it sounds like everybody's got a lot of them. But, so you're quite right. The, and, and, and it's quite clear when people who are upset about the election result were saying the framers did design this electoral college to be, in some sense, anti-democratic. It gives states vote, right? It, it, it gives states extra votes just for being states, and it suppresses the ability of a majority to really have its way. It was the framers of our Constitution actually were not big fans of direct democracy. I think the Senate is actually even worse, more anti-democratic than the Electoral right. College. So uh, you know, sure that we just that's the system we have. So there are there's this one clever proposal to evade the Electoral College because it's up to each state to choose its electors. And so what some states have been doing is passing a law saying, no matter what our vote is in our state, we're gonna give all our electoral votes to whoever wins the national election by population. So this is interesting, if, 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 50 if, if half the states by electoral college vote all agree to do this, then that will effectively make the electoral college obsolete. But it could be unconstitutional because the constitution yeah. prohibits states from making compacts without congressional uh, approval. So I, I don't think it's going to succeed in the end, but it's hard for, right, if you get enough states saying we don't want to have an electoral college anymore, it's going to be harder and harder to defend its legitimacy. Thank you. Well, as we reach the end of this discussion, uh, the second of four programs discussing Trump's 100, first 100 days, I want to ask you all a final question, which is what are your hopes for this president and our nation going forward? Corinne, I'd love to start with you. 
Well, I would like to see him continue his hard work in the White House. Uh, I appreciate the fact that he treats it like a job. I know that there's complaints about him going to Mar-a-Lago every weekend, but you know, for those of us who get up and go to our nine to five every day, we know that there's a place for work and there's a place for home. So that's, I guess that's gonna go along with the territory with this president. Um, again, I would just like to see him uh, continue his hard work. And he's done more in the 63 days that he's been in office than the prior presidents. And I think that going forward into the future, uh, President Trump has definitely raised the bar when it comes to hitting the ground running and keeping your campaign promises. <laughs> Mayor Villaraigosa, what are your hopes for this president and, and the nation moving forward? I'd like to... <laughs> <laughs> this is a family uh, show here, okay? <laughs> you know, look, I... I uh, you know, I... I we mentioned conservative, liberal. I don't think he falls into uh, either category. Uh, uh, as I mentioned, he was very much a populist. Uh, I would hope that he would uh, stop uh, undermining our press freedoms, uh, our judiciary, uh, the powers in, of the Congress. Uh, I would hope that he would make an about face and. And, and recognize that we made, you know, Obamacare wasn't perfect, we all know that, but, you know, more people had health care than at any time in our history. Uh, let's figure out together how, how we do that. Uh, let, let's be true, I think Senator Leno said it so well, let's be true to what he said. He said, you know, I'll give you a better health care plan, more people will be on it, you know, you, you'll pay less for, for you know, Trump care. And, uh, nothing could be further from the truth. So I, I would hope that he'd make an about face and and realize that the presidency is something that we cherish and honor. I, you know, I didn't I didn't vote uh, for the Bushes, I didn't vote for Reagan, but I respected the office of the presidency. It's very difficult to to maintain that respect for someone uh, who who misrepresents the truth and attacks the pillars of our democracy that I hold and you know, dear, and I think we all cherish. Thank you. Do, if I can just, just I'm really well, that quickly. Wasn't. <laughs> with, yeah, with that all was due was respect, in. I mean, the, the Democratic Party is, you know, they really need to put down their pitchforks and grab a cup of coffee and pull up a chair and have a seat at the table and start contributing instead of bashing. <laughs> John, oh. okay. Uh, John, you would uh, Come on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Calm down. Everyone has an opinion. Let's all remember. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I hope I'll get Thanks, you guys. Uh, John, you, what are your hopes for the president and the nation? I'm the one who's usually hissed at things. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to take Corinne with me everywhere. I'm now. used to it. Yeah, <laughs> you're going to have me teach my classes. This is great. No, um, so I, I, I actually uh, agree with the last thing that uh, Governor Villaraigosa said. <laughs> oh. Did we miss an election? <laughs> <laughs> Which is, uh, it's important to, that we, you know, we want to have the institution of the presidency succeed. And so I think some of the things President Trump is are doing are harming the institution. Um, so what I would, if I could advise the president again, um, I would say fire all those guys like Bannon, all the people he brought with the campaign. They're really actually... 
I mean, they really remind me of the guys that Nixon brought with him. You know, like Haldeman and Ehrlichman. Remember all these names? Mitchell, Klein. Anyway, so I think that the, 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 the problem for Trump is that he thinks the things that worked in getting him elected on the campaign are the way you run a presidency and a government. And they're very two different things. And so what I would recommend is like slow down, turn off Twitter, stop watching Fox <laughs> News late at night by yourself. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, you take advantage of the establishment. You know, he ran as an anti-establishment right. guy, but you can't govern, you need the establishment to govern effectively. He should take advantage of all the Republicans and Democrats who have served in government, have a lot of wisdom, rather than trying to pick a fight with everybody. Of course, that's what New Yorkers do. That's how they communicate <laughs> with the rest of the world. So, uh, and so that's why I recommend yeah. for him. Senator Leno? So given that those are all great suggestions, Professor, none of them are going to happen. <laughs> And That's be, why I'm a Berkeley and, professor. And be, why? Why? <laughs> and because I think this presidency is an unimaginable disaster for the country and for the planet. My hope for this administration is that it ends as soon as possible. It's not going to happen. And I will not be surprised if there are impeachment proceedings within the next year. Not happen. And yes, I recognize that the Republicans will hold the office for four years and that I have very little love for the vice president, but the difference is so significant and I'm so concerned for our, the fact, just the fact of facts, that there is now this notion of alternate facts. And so he can destroy the institution of the media, which then gives him free reign to say whatever he wants with impunity because there is no more fact upon which we can base what he says. So thank you. we need to get him out as soon as possible. Put down the pitchfork. Right. Well, thank you to all my panelists. Antonio Villaragosa, former mayor of Los Angeles and candidate for governor. Corinne Rankin, RNC delegate and California director of African-Americans for Trump and a very brave woman. John Yu, <laughs> professor at UC Berkeley School of Law and former deputy U.S. attorney general under President George W. Bush. And Mark Leno, former California state senator for San Francisco. I'm Marisa Lagos from KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. On behalf of my KQED colleagues, we're delighted to be a part of this series of programs about the Trump administration's first 100 days with the Commonwealth Club of California in San Francisco. We have two more programs in the months ahead, but for now, this meeting is adjourned. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration 
professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week.